Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 45 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast, where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning in to the show today. Whether this is your first episode of the show, your 45th, or you're somewhere in between, I am very glad to have you with us today. DD, our canine expedition leader, will be around to greet you and give you the customary expedition welcome by sniffing your leg and staring at you awkwardly. That is usually your cue to give him a good scratch behind the ears, so if you're feeling up to it, I'm sure our boy would love it. Didi has been feeling a little uneasy the last week or so, though, and he's been a little on edge. A thick fog has been slowly rolling over the expedition, and it's been making travel quite difficult. What's worse, the few radios we have with us have been emitting static on and off for a little while now. Every once in a while we've gotten reports of figures in the mist, and one day Dexter, our old man chihuahua, decided he was going to go after one of them. It's been several days now and he hasn't returned. After a few days of travel, we've finally come to what has to be our destination. A green sign emerged from the fog, and it was made quite clear that we are in for one hell of a journey. On that sign were the words, Welcome to Silent Hill. On today's episode, we're checking out a game that many people consider to be one of the best video game horror experiences ever. As in, there is nothing better. It comes with a pretty deep narrative, and it's packaged with a visual and audio presentation that I argue rivals and even surpasses some of the more modern games today. The gameplay experience is one that will stick with you, and more than anything, you'll be thinking about this game and its story long after the credits roll. I, of course, am talking about the one, the only, Silent Hill 2. Silent Hill 2 originally came out in 2001, and I would have been a sophomore in high school at the time, which was 22 years ago. Holy shit, I am getting old. Over the last 22 years, there have been a lot of people who have had a lot of things to say about this game. From analyzing the plot to the gameplay mechanics, you wouldn't think there would be much more to the game to really talk about. The plot, while fairly straightforward in some ways, is very open to interpretation and speculation. People have analyzed the symbolism, picked apart all of the spoken dialogue, and even combed through each and every part of the game's environment. Theories and ideas around what sort of story was trying to be told here, and why certain things were done in certain ways, has been scrutinized to death. And it's all been very fascinating to soak up over all these years. And yet, Silent Hill 2 continues to be a game that people call out when talking about quote-unquote must-play experiences, and when talking about video games that are just pure works of art. How has this game stood the test of time, and what more can I bring to the table? That right there is the cool part, my friends. 
Silent Hill 2 gives each player their own unique experience because the story and the gameplay has a way to connect with players in a way that's special to them and them alone. What I experience playing this game and what its story means to me can be very different from what it means to you. That's why Silent Hill 2 is a game that will always be talked about and why I am excited to share with you my thoughts and experiences with this game today. Now, I do want to caution you a little. If you've come here for a deep, in-depth analysis of the game's story and symbolism and all that, you are going to be slightly disappointed. While I'm certainly going to touch on a few things, I am not planning to go crazy here. Far smarter people have done this on other podcasts and on YouTube videos, and I'll leave the very deep stuff to those folks. Much of what I'll touch on is going to be surface level. And as far as the story itself goes, there is no way I can talk about Silent Hill 2 and not talk about the story, so be warned that I will be spoiling this game's narrative in the back half of the episode today. I'll do a very basic story setup like I normally do, but after talking about the presentation and gameplay, I am going all in. But don't worry though, I will absolutely give you ample warning before this happens, so no need to worry. But I want to make this very clear. If you have never played this game before and somehow have avoided the big reveal when it comes to the narrative, do not let me spoil this for you. This is something you need to experience on your own, and I really hope you can, even if that means picking up the somewhat inferior Silent Hill HD collection to experience it. Either way, I just wanted to let you know what you're in for today. I am very excited to talk about this game with you, and I hope I do it justice on the show today. At the end of the day, this game means a lot to me, and I can't wait to share with you my experiences and why this game's narrative means even more to me now that I'm an adult. Now, if you're new to the show, I like to take some time to chat it up with you all and give you all a peek behind the scenes here at the Retro Wildlands before diving into the episode proper. Depending on what's on my mind, I like to talk about what's going on with the podcast itself, what games I might be playing, what's going on in my personal life, any projects that I'm working on, and whatever else I feel like talking about. I'm also going to take some time to read and respond to any comments that I received about Silent Hill 2 when I put a call out for them on our social media pages. Now, if none of this sounds interesting to you and you're just here for my thoughts on Silent Hill 2, no worries, you can skip ahead about 10 to 12 minutes, I'm thinking I'm going to talk here, and you should get into the game talk. I've also put timestamps in the show notes so you can use those to get exactly where you need to go. But do not run off just yet. Since I don't release episodes as often as I used to, I usually have a decent amount of gaming goodness to talk about. So if you're into that or you just want to hear the smooth tones that are my voice, get comfy by the fire, my friends. Let's move into our opening segment that I like to call Campfire Ketchup. (music) 
So we are in the middle of October, and here in Ohio, the weather has taken a noticeable turn towards the colder side of things. Leaves are starting to turn color, the sun isn't out as often, and the wind is starting to pick up a little. Every now and then, when I stand out on my patio and listen, I can hear the cries and moans of the undead and the screams of an unfortunate victim who wasn't quite fast enough. <laughs> I am kidding, of course, but we are smack dab right in the middle of spooky season. Longtime listeners of the show probably know this about me, but this time of year is my absolute favorite. I love when fall rolls in and the weather gets just a little bit cooler. It brings with it Halloween, a time of scary books, movies, and of course, scary video games. My wife, my stepkids, and I completed decorating our house, by the way, and this time it is covered with creepy baby dolls. All year we've been trying to collect used baby dolls and use them to create a creepy scene in the front yard. It came together pretty well, too. It has an army of baby dolls carrying two bodies that we wrapped up in trash bags. The babies themselves are beautifully bloodied up and dismembered, too. Cameron, my stepdaughter, and I, we were in charge of making the babies look the part. And I have to say, she and I had a wonderful bonding moment while we splattered fake blood and used scissors and hacksaws to create a dark and horrific masterpiece. We especially liked it when I set a few of the babies on fire. It was all a nice moment to share with her, and it is something that I will always treasure in my memories. That's a perfectly normal parenting thing, right? Ah, what am I saying? Of course it is. So since we talked last, I was able to attend the Cleveland Gaming Classic in Cleveland, Ohio, and I kind of wanted to talk about that really quick. It was the first time I've been to this particular gaming convention, and I had a pretty damn good time. While I scored a pretty decent pile of games for my ever-growing collection, what made the show for me was getting to meet some other content creators that I've been interacting with on social media. I got a chance to talk to Brandy Amer, Thomas Hubbard, and Brandon Hurls from The Game Junction. They're a daily gaming and pop culture platform that has a myriad of things cooking at any given time. I was fortunate enough to appear on their podcast way back in February of this year and had a pretty good time with that experience. Brandon, Tom, and Brandy are great people, so if you're looking for a variety of gaming content, you should check them out. I also met a YouTuber by the name of Game Dad. He's primarily creating gaming-related videos over on YouTube where he does things like Let's Plays, console repairs, and a pile of other stuff. He was a genuinely nice guy and really made me feel like a million bucks with his humor and good nature, so check him out if you're looking for more gaming content to consume. And lastly, I got to meet Jay Malone. Jay creates videos on YouTube, and oddly enough, while his videos are very well put together and he talks about some incredible retro gaming content, it was his good-natured, down-to-earth approach to his videos that really drew me in. Jay's channel is called Square Pegs, and you should definitely check that out. 
I really enjoyed meeting Jay because he made me and my wife feel very welcome. He even offered some advice on content creation that was completely unprompted, which ignited a fire in me. I've met a lot of awesome people since starting my podcast journey, and I could not be more grateful. From the YouTubers and fellow podcasters to some of you listening, I'm reminded how lucky I am to be able to do this thing that I'm doing. So, to sum up the Cleveland Gaming Classic, while I came away with a pile of games, my best pickup was meeting some amazing people whom I cannot wait to see again. Now, as far as what games I picked up while I was at the convention, I grabbed about 14 games and about 5 UMD movies for the PlayStation Portable, so it was a pretty sizable haul. Some of the noteworthy games were Super Mario 64 DS and Orcs and Elves for the Nintendo DS, and Star Ocean First Departure, Class of Heroes, and Crash Tag Team Racing on the PlayStation Portable. I was very happy with what I found overall. Now, if you want to see everything that I picked up, check us out over on social media. I put up a post with a few photos of the convention and my haul if you want to take a look. You can find the Retro Wildlands over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, and Threads if you search us out on any of those platforms. Or you can check out our link tree, which has all of our socials in one place. You can get there by going to linktr.ee forward slash Retro Wildlands. The next gaming convention I'll be heading to is the Torg Gaming Expo in Columbus, Ohio, coming up here in November. So if you happen to be in the area, I'll be walking around and checking the show out. So hope to see you there. I cannot wait. Oh, and that reminds me too. I came across a website called TerraPlayer. T-E-R-R-A. It's a platform that's only a few months old now at this point, but it's a growing collection of some awesome video game-centric media. Specifically, gaming music and entertainment shows like podcasts. The folks over at TerraPlayer reached out to me and invited me onto their platform, and I was happy to accept the invitation. So basically, that means the Retro Wildlands are on yet another platform, and I'm hoping that helps us get into more earholes. TerraPlayer seems like such a cool idea, and I think you should at least take a look if the idea of a centralized place for gaming content tickles your fancy. You can find them at terraplayer.com. Again, that's T-E-R-R-A, if you want to get some more information and see how best to listen to them. And just to be clear, the folks over at TerraPlayer are not compensating me in any way to plug their platform. They've just been very kind to me and very professional, so I just wanted to toss them a shout-out for anyone interested. Beyond all of that, though, I've just been staying busy overall. I'm putting in 9-10 to hour days at work, Monday through Friday, and my weekends have been filled to the brim with family activities like birthday parties, dinners, and other things. I have not had a ton of time to devote to the podcast, but I am slowly chipping away at some things. It bums me out a little that I sometimes go days without putting some time into a script or interacting on social media, but I think that's partly what keeps me sane at times while I try and balance out so much in my personal life. 
at the end of the day, you have to prioritize what's important to you. And for me, it's spending time with my wife and kids, family, friends, and just being around those that inject value into my life. Plus, a dose of self-care does go a long way as well. Whether that's just playing a video game for the sake of playing it, or getting away from the noise for a little while. I've had a lot of stress emanate from my full-time job, and I think a good portion of that is starting to fade away now that we have a decent leader that's been injected into the department I'm in. You know, now that I stop and think about it, I'm not really sure where I'm trying to go with this rant. I think the point I'm trying to get across is that I've been very thankful for all the things that I've been doing with friends and family, and stress at my adult job is starting to go down a bit. What really helped, too, was a weekend getaway that my wife and I just took to Cincinnati, Ohio this past weekend. It was mostly her idea, but we got a hotel in the heart of the city and made it a point to explore the city with very little planning. Our main goal was to disconnect from the world and connect with each other, and it was the most fun I've had in a while. We made sure to eat and drink like kings and queens, too. We also took part in a brewery tour where we got to see some underground logger tunnels from the late 1800s, and we checked out the Spring Grove Cemetery in Cincinnati because it had some awesome architecture that we wanted to see. Overall, that was a fantastic time, and I really needed it. Lastly, before we get into the episode, just an update on what games that I've been playing. First up, I am still slowly chipping away at Final Fantasy VI on my Nintendo Switch. I think I'm near the end of the narrative, so I've been going around and grinding out some more levels and looking for some espers that I know I've missed. I am very much using a walkthrough at this point, but it's been fun teaching my characters new abilities and turning them into walking powerhouses. I still need to master the Cultist Tower, which has been a bit of a pain. The boss at the very top of the tower likes to switch which element that they can take damage from on the fly, and it really throws me off. Somehow I find a way to not have the ability to damage him with a specific element, and then I get stuck, but one of these days that tower will fall before I finish this game. Still, Final Fantasy VI is a game that I am enjoying very much, and it is an absolute blast. And while it's taking much longer to finish than I'd like, I am still enjoying every second of it. Other than Final Fantasy VI, I decided to download Resident Evil Revelations 2 on my Nintendo Switch a little while back, and lately I've been using it to kill some time when I'm not really in the mood to play something specific or sit down and have a long play session. I've been playing through the game's raid mode specifically, where you can take a character through a 5-10 minute mission, killing enemies and leveling up. I love Resident Evil in pretty much all forms, and Revelations 2 is almost a comfort food game for me. I don't have to be super engaged in it in order to enjoy it, so it's perfect for when I just want to shut my brain off and not have to take notes or analyze it for the podcast. If I ever did a top 10 list of my favorite comfort food games, this game would be on the list for sure. Eventually, I'll go through the game's main campaign again, and I would like to cover it on the podcast at some point, but that's going to be far down the road, I think. 
I'm also still dabbling in F-099 on my Nintendo Switch as well. Nintendo made a great move with this game by adding some more tracks recently since I spoke to you all last, which is very, very good. The tracks that originally came with the game were starting to get a little stale. I encourage you to give this game a try if you're a Nintendo Online member. A 99-car Battle Royale F-Zero game doesn't really sound awesome on paper, at least not to me, but I have to say, this game really is fun, especially if you're tackling it in short bursts. I still have not won a race yet, and I probably will never win a race at this point, but it's been a fantastic little time waster. And it's perfect for trips to the bathroom, I might add. And lastly, I am still working my way through Super Mario RPG on my Super Nintendo Classic. I'm going to be covering this game on an episode of the podcast coming up, and I am really excited to talk about it. The Mario RPG Remake slash Remaster is coming out in November of this year, and I wanted to cover the original on the show before then. My buddy Nick was very excited to hear me say this, and really, really wanted to jump on the podcast with me to talk about it. So we got our schedules aligned, and we'll be recording that show in the very near future. It should be a really good time, I am looking forward to it. Other than having my stepdaughter on the show a couple times to talk about Simpsons games with me, I haven't had a guest on the show before, so it'll be a small break in the formula for me. I can't wait to put it all together for you guys. It really is going to be a great show. Super Mario RPG has been fun to replay, and I know it means a lot to a good portion of you listening now. And speaking of something that means a lot to you, I think that's the perfect segue to steer us towards the reason that you're all here today. It's time for me to stop yapping and start to take us down the path that will take us into an experience many of us hold in very high regard. And if you have not been down this road yet, hold on to your butts. The time has come for us to talk about Silent Hill 2. Retro Tiburon, the host of the Retro Wave podcast, threw down a comment about their experience playing Silent Hill 2 over on our Retro Wildlands Instagram page and said, Man, I hated some of the puzzles in SH2 and gave up playing it. I think it was a puzzle that had to do with a six-pack of orange soda. You are not kidding about the puzzles in this game, Retro, that is for sure. Some of them aren't too bad, but some of them can be real mind-benders. I think the one you're thinking about involved tossing a six-pack of soda down a garbage chute so you could dislodge whatever was stuck in there, and then you had to go all the way down to where the garbage chute came out to get the item that was stuck in there for yet another puzzle. The puzzles in this game definitely got on my nerves when I was younger, and I had no internet, so that was its own challenge. But there's something about the puzzles that really completes the identity of this game. Even if those puzzles make me want to claw my eyes out with barbed wire sometimes, I still can't help but appreciate them. Thank you so much for writing into the show, Retro. I really appreciate it. And finally, Chris Copeline from the Retro Hangover podcast chimed in over on our Twitter page with a very short but straight-to-the-point comment. He said, Greatest survival horror game ever. 
It's really easy to say that about Silent Hill 2, and I started to wonder, is this the greatest survival horror game ever? Does any other game in the genre even come close? And while I think there's some great games out there, I cannot think of one that comes close to the experience that Silent Hill 2 gives to those who play it. The story is amazing, and 22 years after release, it's still being talked about, and it's still being analyzed. The atmosphere and the sound design surpass even some of the more recent AAA blockbusters. And when a game sticks with you long after you finished it, you cannot ignore that. I've probably completed this game a half a dozen times growing up, and I always always get excited to play it, and it always puts me on the edge of my seat. And when a game does that to you, you know you have something special. Thanks a bunch for the comment, Chris, and for those of you looking for even more Silent Hill 2 content after you're done listening to this show, check out the Retro Hangover podcast episode on Silent Hill 2. It's a little ways back in their archives, but it is a great listen. And if you do check it out, tell Chris and Shane that Nomad sent you. Originally released on September 25th, 2001 for the Sony PlayStation 2, Silent Hill 2 follows a man named James Sunderland as he journeys into the fog-filled town. James received a letter from his wife Mary who tells James that she's waiting for him in Silent Hill. She's alone there and waiting in their special place. The thing is, though, while James still makes the trip to Silent Hill, he knows that getting a letter from Mary is impossible. Because Mary died three years prior, and a dead person cannot write a letter. So what has compelled James to make the journey? What dangers await him? What is he really hoping to find? And when he does find it, will it be everything he hoped for? Well, Wildlanders, it is up to us to take this journey with James and see it through to the end, no matter what that end may hold in store for us. So let's gear up, everyone. Grab your map of the town, your portable radio, and maybe think about grabbing that plank of wood over there for protection. The town is calling to us, beckoning to us. It's going to be up to us to fight whatever horrors might lurk within the town, as well as those horrors that lurk within ourselves. In my restless dreams, I see that town. Silent Hill. You promised you'd take me there again someday. But you never did. Well, I'm alone there now in our special place, waiting for you. first thought about covering Silent Hill 2 on the podcast, I have to admit, I was a little trepidatious. Like I mentioned in the intro of the show, I didn't really know what it was that I could really bring to the table that hasn't already been done, discussed, or analyzed at some point over the last 22 years. 
But it wasn't until recently that I was fortunate enough to sit down with the game again, and by doing so, I was able to put my own worries to rest. This game may tell the same story every time you experience it, but it's what you take away from the experience that truly makes this game a masterpiece in my eyes. Not everyone will come away with the same thing, which I think is the most amazing part of this whole experience. The game's narrative is extremely memorable, and I think the impact that it has on the individual can vary depending on your own personal life experiences. I originally played this game the year it was released, which would have put me at 17 years old. I was still in high school at the time, and while I remember thinking my life was complicated and hard like I'm sure most teenagers do, I still had a lot of life to live and a lot of things to experience. I'm an only child, and I come from a broken home, so I've largely been used to just being alone in most cases. Aside from my core group of nerd friends, I grew up sheltered from any sort of trauma or real hardship. All that said, though, when I played through Silent Hill 2 originally, I genuinely connected with it on a pretty deep level. But mostly that connection was through its scary and anxiety-inducing atmosphere and survival horror gameplay. While the game's story was extremely memorable and absolutely stuck with me over the years, it wasn't until I was an adult that the true meaning of this game's story really hit me. And when I say meaning, I don't mean the game's intended meaning. I think that's still up for debate, even after all these years. I'm talking about what this game's story meant to me as a person, and why Silent Hill 2 is a great example of a gameplay experience that, in a subconscious way, is tailor-made to impact the individual playing it, and isn't just out to tell a clear-cut story. Now that I'm much older and have experienced some life-changing events and even carry a little bit of trauma with me, as I'm sure we all do in some capacity, this game has new meaning to me, and over the course of this episode, I hope I can put what that really means into words. Silent Hill 2 will present some pretty obvious themes to the player, like guilt, grief, and punishment. But more than that, this game takes a deeper look into things like love, lust, abuse, and mental illness, and how these things can impact us as people. Now, really quick, in case you skip the intro of the show, I just wanted to call out again that there is no way that I could talk about Silent Hill 2 and not touch on the story and some of the symbolism within. I am not planning to do an in-depth analysis on any of the symbolism or the deeper parts of the story because far better content creators have done some pretty deep dives already, but I'll be at least talking about some of the major plot points, especially the big twist near the end. I'm going to save all of this though for the back half of the show, and I'll give you ample warning before I start spoiling things, but I just wanted to warn you ahead of time. If you've never played Silent Hill 2 before, and you plan to in any capacity, I encourage you to make sure you stop the podcast when I start talking about the major story beats. This game is best experienced on your own, and I do not want to spoil this game for you unless you want it to be spoiled. That said, I will be talking about the game's beginning 10 or 20 minutes just to set the stage, but there is nothing in there that would be or should be considered a spoiler. Does that all sound alright to you? Good, let's carry on. 
So with all of that said, let's start to unravel Silent Hill 2's many, many layers and see exactly what it is that we are working with. So, what is this game? Silent Hill 2 is a third-person survival horror game that was developed by the notorious Team Silent and published by Konami. While this game was originally released on the PlayStation 2, it eventually found its way to the original Xbox, PC, and then eventually remastered in high definition for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. In this game, players follow the story of James Sunderland, a man who finds himself in the town of Silent Hill thanks to a letter he received from his wife Mary. The thing about this letter is that it was written after Mary died three years prior. Within it, Mary tells James that she's waiting in Silent Hill for him in their special place. Confused and a little shaken up by this, James makes the trip to Silent Hill in order to find his late wife. The whole notion is ridiculous, and it couldn't possibly be true. But James can't help but wonder if she's still alive somehow. It's up to us as the player to guide James through Silent Hill as we uncover the truth by exploring the town and coming face to face with the darkest parts of ourselves and those we meet along the way. The original Silent Hill on the Sony PlayStation was centered around the town itself and the dark individuals who did not have your best interests in mind. We learn just how powerful the town itself can be and how it can physically manifest one's physical and mental trauma in the way of dark imagery and even monsters. In Silent Hill 2, the game mainly focuses on the characters themselves, their psychology, and how each of their traumas manifest in the fog-filled town. It's worth noting that you don't need to have played the original Silent Hill to understand what's going on in the sequel. The original should absolutely be played if you get the chance, and it helps you understand the power that Silent Hill as a town has, but the sequel is a standalone experience. So in order for us to really wrap our heads around this game's presentation, gameplay, and story setup, we're going to need to pop this game into our PlayStation 2 and just get right into it. Let me grab my disc here. And let's throw it into the PlayStation 2 and hit that power button. Oh yeah, that sound will never get old. Mm -mm -mm -mm. So when the game boots up, we're met with a title screen and only two options, assuming we've never played the game before. We can either select a new game or option to tweak some of the game's settings. Now if we don't do anything and we just sit here for a minute or so, the screen will fade to black and we'll be met with an opening movie that plays out like a trailer for the game. Using some of the beautiful and haunting CGI cutscenes that we'll experience in-game, this little mini-movie will give us a glimpse of what's to come and, more importantly, who we are destined to meet along the way. Let's wait a moment and let it play. Any day now. Ah, here we go. 
On screen, we can see a young blonde woman sitting in a wooden chair behind a set of steel bars. Dressed in a red cardigan and sporting a pink leopard print skirt, she speaks to James, our main character who is outside the bars. James, honey, did something happen to you? After we got separated in that long hallway? Are you confusing me with someone else? <laughs> you were always so forgetful. Remember that time in the hotel? Maria? You said you took everything, but you forgot that videotape we made. I wonder if it's still there. How do you know about that? Aren't you Maria? At this point, we get to see glimpses of the game and some of the characters that we're going to meet. While the music playing is pretty upbeat for this sort of an experience, the imagery shown is a bit dark and foreboding. Images of an empty bedroom full of medicine bottles, images of dark and rusted over prisons, and even a large pile of what looks like human bodies. We see James himself examining his face in a mirror, and then we're shown whom we later find out is Mary, James's wife. Her face looks a lot like the woman in red that we just saw on screen, but that coincidence is something that we'll be definitely touching on later. Speaking of the woman in red, she appears in the video at this point. Her name is Maria, and her flirtatious smile and bright blue eyes immediately catch our attention. There's definitely something about this woman that draws us in, but also something that gives us caution. Eventually, we see another female dressed in a white sweater. She has brown hair, brown eyes, and seems pretty fixated on a kitchen knife that she's holding while lying down on her side. We'll learn pretty early on that this woman is named Angela, and she's come to Silent Hill looking for her mother. As we continually interact with Angela during the game, we'll come to learn that she has some deeply rooted traumas of her own that stem from her relationship with her father. She carries around a knife with dried blood on the end, and while it's not clear what her true motivations are, it's very evident that Silent Hill has called out to Angela, much like it has called out to James. Next, we get a glimpse of a larger man named Eddie. Sporting a ball cap put on backwards and a blue and white striped shirt, we'll later learn that Eddie was also drawn to Silent Hill as well. As we get to know him, it's made pretty clear that Eddie harbors a sort of self-hatred. He's overweight and is constantly bullied by others for his appearance, and comes off to me like someone who might have body dysmorphic disorder or something similar. It's a bit of a mystery at first as to why Eddie finds himself in Silent Hill in the first place, but the path he walks is a tragic and painful one. Lastly, we see on screen a little girl who is quite clearly out of place in all of this. Her name is Laura, and her presence in Silent Hill is mostly shrouded in mystery. While she can be a bit of a brat and a little rude at times, it's made pretty clear that she is connected to James in some capacity. While I won't get into the details, I will say that Laura plays an interesting role in the game's narrative. After a bit more visual flair, our movie comes to a close and we're left with Maria finishing up her conversation with James. 
It doesn't matter who I am. I'm here for you, James. See? I'm real. Maria gently places her hand on James's cheek and smiles a seductive yet sinister smile before the image on screen fades to black. From here, we're taken back to the title screen. Once we select a new game, we're given a few options. First, we need to select the action level that we want to experience. This is basically the difficulty level for the combat encounters that will happen across our playthrough. I won't get into the specifics here, but the game is meant to be experienced on the normal setting. Here, enemies will take a couple hits to put down and usually require a follow-up attack to put down for good. Enemies may respawn, but you won't be overwhelmed too often. When I played the game again recently, I had an overabundance of firearm ammunition and didn't have any difficulty with most monster encounters, so I think normal is a good setting if you're tackling this game for the first time. So that being said, let's select normal. And the other thing we need to select now is a riddle level. The Silent Hill franchise, especially the earlier ones, were well known for their dark and grisly settings, but they are almost as well known for their mind-bending puzzles. I still remember playing the original Silent Hill with my stepdad, and how it sometimes took us days to work through some of the riddles that blocked our progress. We would use notebook paper to write out potential solutions or theories, and while we eventually made it past them all, and it's fun to talk about today, it was incredibly frustrating in the moment. Now, with Silent Hill 2, we can tailor the riddle experience to our personal tastes. For me, I don't mind a good riddle, but I don't enjoy being stumped for hours on end. But I also don't want something to be so easy that I'll figure it out with no effort. Silent Hill 2 overall doesn't have a ton of riddles or anything, so you don't have to worry about the pacing getting thrown out of whack or anything like that. But this setting does allow you to decide how much of this experience you want in your playthrough, and I absolutely appreciate this. So once we decide on our riddle level, we select it, and the game begins. We're met with a black screen and complete silence. White footsteps appear on screen, which indicates to the player that the game is loading. In this initial moment, I always found myself feeling a little tense. Silent Hill 2 does a great job of filling the player with anxiety, and the best way it does this is through the absolute silent moments, even when you're just waiting for the next area to load up. Once the game does load, we're met with a beautifully rendered CGI cutscene. We see James Sunderland looking into a mirror at himself. As he stares at his reflection, he wipes his hand across his face, almost as if James is making sure what is staring back at him is real. James has good reason to question things as of late, and we'll soon get an understanding as to why. The CGI cutscene ends with James tilting his head back and taking a deep breath. From here, the game transitions into in-game graphics. 
We can see that James is in a roadside restroom that is anything but tidy. The walls are caked with graffiti and everything is just dirty. The camera that points towards James is near a row of urinals and it's pretty clear those things have not seen any care in quite some time. James continues to look at himself in the mirror and then he wonders aloud to himself. Mary, could you really be in this town? At this point, control is given to the player. Now before we move out of the restroom, a quick word on the controls. Silent Hill 2, by today's standards, is a very clunky experience. Hell, it might even be considered a clunky experience by yesterday's standards too. Movement in this game utilizes tank controls, which may not be the most intuitive control scheme for most people. They are, however, a favorite of mine. I think they are perfect for survival horror experiences, or any horror experience for that matter, and I will die on that hill. Now quickly, in case you have no idea what I mean by tank controls and you missed the half a dozen other times I've explained it on the show. When a game has tank controls, it means that moving your character is based on the direction your character is facing instead of the camera view. Pressing up on your directional pad will move James forward based on the direction he's facing. Pressing left or right will only make James pivot his body in those directions, almost like he's on a rotating platform. Pressing down on the directional button will move James backwards relative to the direction he's facing. In more modern third-person games, you move in the direction that you press on the directional pad. Tank controls are pretty clunky and hard to get used to, like I said, but man do I love them. There's also a few other ways that we can move James around and keep him mobile in this game. Pressing either the L1 or R1 shoulder buttons will have James strafe sideways to the left or to the right, respectively. If you press these buttons together at the same time, James will turn on his heels and perform a 180 degree quick turn, which is going to be very useful if you need to beat a quick retreat and you don't want to watch James take his sweet ass time turning around. Okay, with the controls out of the way, it is time we start our journey to Silent Hill. Let's move James out of the restroom and get going. As we exit the restroom, the game takes over and we watch an in-game cutscene. Looking around, James slowly walks to the top of the screen where he rests on a waist-high brick wall that overlooks what I assume is Lake Toluca, which is a large body of water in the Silent Hill area. The area itself is covered in a thick fog, but we can still make out most things around us. We soon hear the voice of Mary, James's wife, as we look out at the water. In my restless dreams, I see that town. Silent Hill. You promised you'd take me there again someday. But you never did. At this point, James starts to explain what it is we just heard and gives us as players the reason we are here in the first place. James got a letter. The name on the envelope said Mary, his wife's name. It's ridiculous. Couldn't possibly be true. That's what he keeps telling himself, that a dead person can't write a letter. Because Mary died. She died from that damn disease three years ago. So why are we looking for her? 
James wonders what Mary meant by our special place. The whole of Silent Hill was their special place. But then James begins to think it was the park off the lake that Mary was referring to. They spent the whole day there together once, just the two of them, staring at the water. Could Mary really be there? Is she alive, waiting for us? Well, I'm alone there now, in our special place, waiting for you. As that final thought lingers, control is given back to the player and our journey to Silent Hill officially begins. The first thing we notice is the car that James used to drive here. It looks a lot like an old Pontiac Ventra for anyone who can picture that beast. James left the driver's side door open, so we head on over and take a look inside. Pressing the X button on the controller has James search whatever is directly in front of him. Inside the car, we can see a map lying there. Pressing the X button allows us to collect it. A prompt lets us know that we just got a map of Silent Hill. This will absolutely come in handy, as well as any other maps we find along our way. As we continue to the left of the screen, we find a staircase downwards. Following the path downwards, we come to a path that has a large cliff face on one side and a drop-off on the other. This path isn't as perilous as it seems, and it's the only path leading into Silent Hill that's accessible, so we have no choice but to move forward. The walk into the town itself takes a bit of time, and the trek itself does a great job of building tension. From a presentation standpoint, this is usually the first time that I really notice how my surroundings look. The detail on James himself is done up really well, but it's the areas that you move through in the game that really take the presentation cake. One thing that I really like is that there's a grain filter overlaying the game's visuals. I've also heard it called a noise filter or a noise effect. It basically gives the graphics a gritty sort of look, almost like how old movies used to look when you watch them on VHS tapes, for those of you old enough to remember those. While some people don't really care for this filter since it can hide some of the game's finer graphical features and dull some of the edges, I rather like this effect. At the end of the day, I am not loyal to the grain filter. I can certainly take it or leave it, but I certainly don't mind it. Now, the fog effects are done really well in this area and pretty much everywhere else that you're going to see when you're in Silent Hill. In the original Silent Hill game, the dense fog was used to hide the PlayStation's short draw distance and allow parts of the town to load out of sight, giving the player a smoother, uninterrupted experience while exploring the town. While it's possible this is happening in Silent Hill 2, the fog overall is visually upgraded. I read somewhere that the fog in this game is comprised of 2D and 3D graphical assets, which give it the look and feel that we see. You can't see very far in the distance, however the particle effects in the foreground give you a sort of claustrophobic feeling without really restricting your movement or field of view. The PlayStation 2 had some decent graphical power for the time, and that power is on full display pretty much at any point in this game. Even more so when you're somewhere where the lights are out. 
We may touch on it a little later, but when you make your way inside of a building and all you have is a pocket flashlight to shine your way forward, the real-time lighting effects are extraordinary. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so let's get back on track. As we make our way down the long pathway to Silent Hill, we're treated to something quite amazing, albeit a little creepy. This game sports some fantastic sound design and ambient noise that not only pull you into the world, it'll have you wondering just what the hell is beyond the fog or the darkness. As we continue moving forward, we hear the sounds of an unknown animal close to us. When I play Silent Hill 2, or any game like this for that matter, I always try to wear a good pair of headphones. These monster growls that you just heard aren't just thrown into the background noise. They actually come from a specific direction, and you can hear them in your headphones that way. It made the moment a little more tense, and I found myself wanting to get through this area just a little bit quicker. So speaking of, I think that's what we should do now. James can run if we hold down the square button, and we do just that. At full speed, James can cover quite a bit of ground, but we'll have to be careful. Eventually, James will lose a bit of speed as he gets tired. He won't ever stop running, but he won't stay at top speed forever. Standing completely still will have James catch his breath, and he'll regain his top running speed again. It's a little thing that solidifies the fact that James is just a normal guy, and not some highly trained special forces agent. This is going to come into play when it comes to defending himself as well, but we'll get there in due time. Eventually, we'll come across a well that's just a hair off the beaten path. Given that there really hasn't been much around us, we naturally feel compelled to walk over and take a look. When we examine the well, we look inside to see a red rectangular looking thing. Is it a mirror, perhaps? Looking at it makes James feel like someone is groping around inside his skull and gives him a weird feeling. At this point, the screen fades to red, and we're taken to a screen that allows us to save our game on our memory card. These red squares are going to be here and there as we continue our journey, so we'll need to be on the lookout for them. Usually, they're at the beginning of a new area, or maybe somewhere deep within an area. Continuing on, we continue to move down the path. It's usually at this point where I start to realize the game's camera can be a little unwieldy. It may stay in front of James, making you walk towards the screen and unable to see what's in front of you, or something similar. To alleviate this, you can press and hold down the L2 shoulder button. If it's possible, and it's not always possible, the camera will swing back behind James, giving you a view of what's in front of you again. You'll need to do this quite often, especially when you're in a confined space. The worst part is, the camera may not always swing behind you. It may be locked in depending on the area that you're in, so you'll just need to keep this in mind. While it's not the worst thing ever, I do have genuine dislike for some of the camera angles at times. It can make moving through this world difficult. 
But on the other hand, the wonky camera angles can add to the tension and scare factor, so I tend to give them a pass more often than not. Ammo and health items on normal difficulty are pretty plentiful if you don't put yourself in needless combat situations all the time, so in the grand scheme of things, the camera most likely will not put you in a terrible spot. Moving on, we finally come to the end of the path that we're on, and we make it to a large steel gate. Once we pass through, the area opens up quite a bit. Moving forward, we start to see gravestones lining the ground, and there's a lone figure crouched in front of one. As we draw closer, the screen fades to white, and another beautifully rendered CGI cutscene begins to play. We see a young woman in a white sweater examining one of the many tombstones. James walks over to her and startles her out of her thoughts. Excuse me, I... <gasps> oh, I, I'm sorry. I... I was just... No, it's just... okay. I didn't mean to scare you. I'm kind of lost. Lost? Angela is a little calmer now, and we ask her for directions into Silent Hill. We're told there's only one road up ahead, and that we can't miss it if we keep going. However, Angela suggests that we stay away from Silent Hill. She says there's something wrong with the town. She can't quite explain it, and concedes that it might be a little dangerous, but James isn't interested in this advice. And it's not just the fog, either. Okay, it's... I got it. I'll be careful. I'm not lying! No, I believe you. It's just, I guess I really don't care if it's dangerous or not. I'm going to town either way. But why? I'm looking for someone. Angela lets us know that she's been looking for her family. Her mother, brother, and father specifically. The two of them exchange quick wishes of good fortune to each other and part ways. It certainly seems that another troubled soul has found their way into Silent Hill as well. It's pretty clear that we'll see Angela again, but for now, we continue onwards. It's still a little ways until we get into Silent Hill proper, but the game goes right back to bringing the tension and unease. In an area just up ahead, it's a bit more wide open and a little easier to get lost without any landmarks to guide you. There's actually an interesting thing that happens in this area that I never realized until I was wearing a pair of headphones. As you walk, the sounds of your footsteps crunch on the dirt road. But if you listen close, you'll actually be able to hear the sounds of another set of footsteps walking in time with you. As soon as you stop, they will stop. Once you start again, they'll start back up as well. It really created this moment where I genuinely thought someone was following me and had me creeped out just a little bit. There are a lot of touches like this all over the game, and some of them you may even miss if you're not paying attention. One of my favorites is coming up soon, so I'll save that one for later. Eventually, we make it to the streets of Silent Hill. Those that have played the original game on the PlayStation are in for a big treat here. The buildings and architecture look amazing on the PlayStation 2, and it's awesome to see this town look even more lifelike. Even the blood on the road looks more realistic. Wait a minute, blood? 
We round a corner with James, and he stops to comment on what he's seeing. Are these marks actually blood? Suddenly we're shown a view down the street, and we can see a figure walking away from us in the fog. There's something off about it, though. Like, it isn't quite human. Nevertheless, if video games have taught us anything, it's that we always follow figures and apparitions into the unknown, and that is exactly what we're going to do. As we follow the figure and more trails of blood, we come across a fenced-in area. The gate is slightly ajar, and by examining it, we are able to pass through. There's a wooden table in the middle of this area that has another of those red squares on it that we can use to save our game if we want. But more importantly, there are two items that we can collect here that are quite valuable. As you move James into the area, you'll notice that his head is pointed towards the ground. Anytime there is an item that you can pick up that James can see, he'll look towards it. Items in the environment that you're meant to interact with don't always pop out, so this is a great way for the player to know that there's something in the area that needs grabbing. In this case, there are two health drinks ripe for the picking. Standing over them, we press the X button to pick them up, and then we add them to our inventory. This actually reminds me of something I forgot to mention. In Silent Hill 2, just like the original, there are no HUD elements on screen. This means there is no health meter on screen, no on-screen map, or anything to obstruct the player's view. In order to see what items you have with you, or what your current health is, you'll need to jump into the menu. So speaking of, let's do that now really quick. Pressing the start button takes us to the menu, and our inventory is the first thing we see. We don't really have too much to look at right now, but the items that we do have on us appear on a wheel of sorts. Pressing left or right on the directional pad will cycle through them. We can see the health drinks that we picked up here, and it's within this menu that we'll have to use them if the need arises. Some tend to argue that it's a bit of a pain in the ass to have to open up your menu, cycle to the item, and then use it, instead of just being able to use the health item on the fly in real time, but I actually think this adds a little bit to the overall experience, in a positive way. When you're in a combat situation and you need to heal up, opening the menu silences the noise around you and gives you a much-needed moment to collect yourself. But the tension doesn't go away because you know the monster you're fighting is still going to be there waiting for you. Now as we cycle through our items, we'll also notice that James has two other items with him. One of them is a photograph of his late wife Mary when she was still healthy looking. Dressed in a pink blouse and wearing a happy smile, Mary looks happy as she stares back at us. And the other item is the letter from Mary that James referenced in the very beginning of the game. We can examine both of these items at any time, but they really don't do anything. At least nothing really obvious. Silent Hill 2 veterans probably know what I might be getting at here, though. <laughs> but anyway, let's close our inventory and move on. We have a shambling figure to pursue. After exiting the fenced-in area and continuing down the road that we're on a little ways, we'll come across another dirt road, and at the end of it, we'll come to an underpass that has the makings of a wooden barrier that's not quite complete yet. Examining the barrier, James will automatically crawl through an opening and proceed into the underpass. 
As soon as he does, we start to hear some sort of static. James spots something and bends over to pick it up. It looks like a little pocket radio. After messing with the dials a little bit, James realizes that he is not alone in the underpass. The camera pans to behind James, and we can see a humanoid figure just a little ways in front of us. Slowly, it gets to its feet. We can't quite see the creature's finer features, but it's backlit by the light behind us. The creature itself almost looks as though it's bound in a straitjacket. But instead of an actual jacket, the creature's arms are wrapped in its own flesh. James responds quite appropriately by letting his eyes go wide and slowly backing away, but his back hits the wooden barrier we just passed through. Looking down, James spots a loose part of the barrier and decides to grab it. Taking a long wooden plank in his hands, he decides he's going to battle the creature. Now at this point, the game gives back control to the player and we're face to face with this abomination. While there's no on-screen prompts, this encounter serves as a tutorial battle of sorts. Melee combat in Silent Hill 2 is pretty clunky and not at all intuitive, and we're going to find that out pretty quickly here. When James has a melee weapon equipped, we need to hold down the R2 shoulder button for James to ready that weapon. Pressing the X button will have James swing it. There's no lock-on feature here, so we'll have to do our best to line up the monster as best we can, which you will learn pretty quickly that this can be a little frustrating. Anyway, enough talk. That creature is making their way towards us, and I don't think we want to figure out what it wants. Let's get ready and swing. Nice, direct hit. Let's keep the pressure up. Press the X button so we can swing again. The creature goes down, and we can tell that we've killed it because the radio static stops. James walks over to the creature and examines the body by poking it with the wooden plank. Is it dead? What the hell is it? It's not human. From this point on, as we explore Silent Hill, we are going to be seeing this creature all over the place. Thankfully, it isn't too hard to take down, but the best part about this creature is that it's quite slow. Out on the open streets of Silent Hill, it's very easy for us to run around them and avoid them completely. Anyway, there's nothing more for us to do here, so let's move on. As we pass back through the barrier out of the underpass, James remembers the radio he picked up and grabs it out of his pocket. Oh yeah. This thing broken? What the? I better take it anyway. I might need it. While the words were pretty hard to make out, there is no doubt that that voice that we just heard over the radio was Mary's. Is she really here? Or has James lost his mind completely at this point? Either way, the radio is going to be one of our most valuable tools on this journey. Just like in the first Silent Hill game, the pocket radio will emit a static sound anytime a monster is anywhere near us. 
This is one of the best gaming mechanics in all of video gaming in my opinion. Not only does it serve as a warning system for potential threats, it really raises the tension for the player. The fog and darkness of Silent Hill are hiding all sorts of dangers, and you can assume there's always something out there just waiting for you. The static on the radio not only confirms your fears, but it makes the moment even more tension-filled because we know something is out there and we just can't see it. Sometimes we kind of find ourselves in the groove of exploring and looking around a place, but as soon as that radio static is in our ear holes, we immediately change our tactics and we think about whether we want to find this threat and take it down or find a way to avoid it completely. And when we do decide to combat a threat, or if we're given no other choice, the static itself can almost be disorienting and add a layer of stress. Now, all of that sounds bad when you say it out loud, but you have to experience it firsthand. I don't know how else to describe it. We will have to be very cautious, though. Not all monsters in Silent Hill 2 will have the radio emit static, and not all monsters that do can be fought. At this point in our journey, we're left to our own devices. We know that we want to get to the park by the lake, so it's up to us to get there ourselves. Using the map, we can see where we need to go, but we'll quickly find out that some roads are blocked and we'll need to find other ways to progress. Which leads me into another returning game mechanic that I absolutely love. As you explore Silent Hill and the many interior locations you're going to come across, James will update the map using a red marker. Example, if you're walking down a road and there happens to be a gigantic hole in the ground that prevents you from moving any farther, James will mark that on the map. Same goes for any locked doors or impassable barriers. It really helps with exploration, and it's very useful if you find yourself lost and you aren't quite sure where you need to go next. For me, I love exploring off the beaten path, and seeing every nook and cranny of a game is a big motivator for me. So much so that I'll make sure that I can get James to mark up as much of the map as possible. However, if I had one small gripe about the exploration in this game, it's that I didn't think there was as much opportunity to explore Silent Hill itself as I would have liked. It might just be me, but I felt like a lot of time was spent in interior locations like the apartment building and the hospital. And while these locations are fantastic in their own right, I would have loved to see more of the town itself. It doesn't take away from the overall experience, though don't get me wrong, I just felt like throwing that out there. Anyhow, as we explore the town, we'll quickly find out that the fog-filled streets are full of monsters, and the direct route to the park is inaccessible. I won't get into all the details, but eventually we'll find clues that lead us to the Woodside Apartment Complex. This complex will serve as one of several interior locations that we'll need to enter and conquer in order to progress forward. While not the best comparison, I like to think of the interior locations you'll visit as dungeons. Multiple rooms, several puzzles to solve, and monsters a plenty. We'll explore a little bit of the apartment complex, but just as a warning for those of you looking to avoid story spoilers, we're going to get to spoiler territory shortly. Don't worry though, you'll have plenty of warning before that happens, and a musical interlude will separate the spoiler talk. 
So when we transition into the apartment complex, the first thing you'll notice is... Complete silence. It is also incredibly dark in here. I always get a little nervous and just a little anxious whenever I get to this part of the game because it's very easy to let your imagination run wild here. What could be waiting in the darkness and would I hear it coming? And while this moment can certainly be scary and full of tension, this is a great example of how awesome Silent Hill 2's presentation can get. This game excels when it uses ambient sound and music to paint a picture of tension and horror, but it really excels at this when sound is completely absent. Almost like holding your breath while you wait for the jump scare, the entire environment is holding its breath and allowing the player to create the horror and tension in their own minds. For the most part, Silent Hill as a whole doesn't really rely on things like jump scares or horror set pieces. There are a couple here and there, but what really makes this game terrifying is its masterful use of sound and the sheer absence of it. It is incredible. Mwah. So let's turn our attention back to James and make our way through the lobby of the apartment complex. First though, if we look to the left, we'll see a map of the building hanging on a corkboard. Always make sure to keep an eye out for a new map anytime you go into a new interior location. If one is available, it is usually near the entrance of that area. Now let's grab this one and let's get moving. The darkness that shrouds the interior is pretty thick. It's actually so dark that you might have to consider adjusting the brightness setting on your TV or monitor in order to get an idea of where some walls are. At least that's usually my experience. I played Silent Hill 2 using an HDMI adapter cable, so that might have had something to do with it. But regardless, we need a light source. Until then, however, we're going to be stumbling around in the dark a little bit. You'll find out quickly that, while the apartment complex is pretty vast and there's plenty of rooms to explore, 90% of the doors are locked and you cannot open them. And don't even go and think you have a chance of opening them if you can find a key or something, because there is no key and they will not open, ever. Now that is not necessarily a bad thing, though. While you might get a little put off here and there on how many inaccessible places there are, you'll more than likely feel a little relieved that a door is locked instead of proceeding into another unknown area of the game that could have a monster prowling inside. In any case, we won't be able to find a light source unless we explore every area and try every door. After proceeding to the second floor of the complex, let's try the first store off the staircase. Nope, can't get in there. Let's try the next one. Eh, locked. How about this one? Surely third time's a charm, right? Ah, god damn it. Okay, how about this one? Oh, come on! Oh, okay. This one has to open. Let's turn the handle and... Ah, oh, finally. When we enter this room, we find that there's a light shining somewhere in the room. As we make our way inside, the camera shifts to the back of the room, and we're staring at James from the front. There's a human-ish figure in the center of the room, and it seems to be the source of the light that we're seeing. 
As we cautiously approach, the camera flips around behind James again, and we see that the human figure we see is the upper half of a mannequin. The mannequin is dressed in a modest woman's skirt and blouse, and near the neckline of the blouse is a pocket flashlight. Aha! That is what we need. We press the X button and collect the light. As soon as we do, however... A monster that was lying in the shadows rises to its feet. This is a new creature and the look of it is just unreal. Imagine the bottom portion of two female mannequins sewn together at the midsection. The creature we're looking at essentially has four legs, no head, no neck, and no chest. The bottom legs have feet that the creature uses to move around, and the top legs act like arms, although it has no feet or even hands on the end. As it shambles towards us, we do the only sensible thing we can do. We beat the ever-living shit out of it with our plank of wood until it stops moving. Well, we may have a light now, but we need to be mindful of the darkness. No telling what sort of other creatures are lurking around here. And they're so strange looking too. Like the nightmares of someone deeply disturbed or someone suffering on the inside. But before we move on though, let's take a closer look at that mannequin that had the flashlight on it. There's something about the clothes that it's wearing. It's... Wait a minute. That pink blouse, where have we seen it before? We open up our inventory and cycle over to the picture that we have of Mary. Yep, that's it. The clothes she's wearing in the photo are the clothes on the mannequin. What could it all mean? Is Mary really here? In Silent Hill? Not wasting any more time pondering, we head out of the room and we continue our search. Even though this is still the beginning of the game, more or less, this gameplay loop is what's going to persist over the length of your playtime in Silent Hill 2. James will explore and make his way through areas solving puzzles or using items he finds to unlock areas and advance further. It's pretty normal fare for these types of games, but this is where this game excels. Silent Hill 2 doesn't really set out to scare you in the traditional sense, but it does consciously ratchet up the tension by leveraging that fear of the unknown and using the game's excellent sound design to great effect. You may come across an area you think is safe, and it probably is. But then something happens that puts you back on guard and has you literally holding your breath and listening intently before you start to move on again. There is actually a great example of this in the apartment building. I won't say exactly where, but I remember walking through a room and feeling, you know, relatively safe. Enough light was shining in from the outside that I could see pretty much everything in the room and it almost felt a little welcoming. But as soon as I started walking through the room, I heard soft whispers in my ear. The whispers were only on one side of my headphones, and that made me think that someone in real life was actually whispering to me. 
I remember whipping my head to the side expecting to see my stepdaughter, because this is something she would absolutely do to me while I was playing a scary game. But when I looked around my office, she wasn't there, and the door behind me was still closed. The whisper had freaked me out enough that I paused the game, took off my headphones, and went into our living room. When I rounded the corner, there was Cameron sitting on the couch playing on her phone. There was no way it was her, because whenever Cameron tries to sneak up on me and scare me in some way, she can't contain her excitement or laughter, especially if she gets me to jump. She was just sitting there, oblivious to me even being there. I shivered a little bit and eventually went back to the game. After that point, though, I never heard that whisper again. Outside of the sound design and overall atmosphere, what really makes this game a masterpiece in horror and narrative is just that, the game's story. There isn't a ton of dialogue from the characters, but through that super cheesy dialogue and some notes and files you find, you can piece together a lot of what's happening to James and the other characters that you meet. The beautiful part is, much of it is left up to the interpretation of the player, so much so that many people have some wild theories as to what's happening in the town, why certain monsters look the way that they do, and what some of the symbolism really means. I'm not going to get that deep into it here on this podcast, but I do want to touch on some of the things I know to be true about the story and talk about the game's big narrative twist. So while there's probably a little more about the gameplay and presentation that I could touch on, I think it's time we move on to the game's story. So this is it, my friends. This is your spoiler warning. I'm going to take a quick break and grab a drink, but when we come back, I want to talk about some of the characters that we meet in Silent Hill, some of the symbolism behind some of the things, and I want to talk about that major twist at the end. I've never really discussed any of this with another human because I never felt like I truly understood it fully. But now that I'm older, I have a few things to talk about and a few points that kind of make sense to me. And be warned, while I've kept the podcast relatively light in terms of adult themes in this game, that's all going out the window as we talk about the story. Prepare to hear me touch on topics like terminal illness, mental and physical abuse, sexual themes, bullying, and suicide. I don't plan to go into super graphic detail or anything, but if any of these topics make you uncomfortable, or you haven't played the game and you don't want me to spoil it for you, this is where you'll want to head out. And if you do decide heading out is right for you right now, Thank you very much for hanging out with me today and listening to me try and do this game some justice. But if you're all in, get ready, my friends. After this quick break, we're going to continue our journey into Silent Hill 2. Okay, really quick before we move on. 
One of my favorite things about Silent Hill 2 is the many discussions that have happened around the game's narrative and its symbolism. While there is a lot that I feel is pretty widely accepted by the fans of this game, there are some theories that are still being debated and even others that are just outright rejected. What I'm going to talk about are mostly the things that are largely agreed upon and what's been confirmed by Team Silent, the game's developer. If I dip my toes into some theories that might not be what we all believe, please do not message me and tell me that I'm wrong about something or that I don't know what I'm talking about unless you want to actually have a meaningful discussion with me. I am all about having a discussion with someone if our viewpoints differ, but I am not into the idea of arguing with anyone over the open interpretation of a video game. So I just wanted to throw that out there before we get going. I'm just an old man who loves games, and I am eager to give you my perspective. So with that out of the way, let's continue on. So as we know, Silent Hill 2 begins with giving the player a pretty simple objective. Enter Silent Hill and find Mary, James' wife, who supposedly died three years ago. However, as you get deeper into the game itself, you'll discover that this objective, while persistent throughout, tends to fall secondary to interacting with and learning about the different characters you'll come across in your travels. The town of Silent Hill has an ancient power about it and the ability to manifest the repressed thoughts and feelings of those who enter. Some may say the town calls out to those who have suffered or even to those that have caused suffering. To what end, though? To give an opportunity to atone, maybe, or to enact punishment. Or maybe just to come to terms with whatever baggage that person might be carrying. It's not quite clear where James himself falls in this category when we start the game, but we'll figure that out pretty quickly as we get towards the end of the game. Now, there are four key characters that James will interact with over the course of the game. Maria, Eddie, Angela, and Laura. I already envision this podcast going pretty long, so in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over Eddie and Laura and focus on Angela and Maria. The biggest reason for focusing on those two is I find those characters the most interesting, and if I dove into all four characters, like I said, this episode would literally go on forever. If you're still listening to the podcast this far, I have to assume you've played the game and have an idea of who everybody is and how they all fit into the narrative. But if you can't quite remember, that's just another reason for you to revisit this game. So as a way to start talking about all the things I want to get to, let's start this journey by talking about Angela. The very first person James meets in Silent Hill is Angela, and in my opinion, she is the most compelling. She's a young girl who's in town looking for her missing mother. Once we start talking to Angela, it can be noted that she's a little apprehensive around James. While their initial meeting is somewhat uneventful, it's the second time James and Angela meet that generally sticks with players. You come across her in the apartment complex, lying on the floor of a back room. She's holding a bloodstained knife, and it's made pretty clear that Angela is contemplating taking her own life. Her voice is slow and soft, almost as if she's extremely tired. 
I don't know what you're planning, but there's always another way. Really? But you're the same as me. It's easier just to run. Besides, is what we deserve. James is taken aback by this. He refuses the idea that he would take his own life, and Angela starts to goad him on about this before immediately getting defensive and then apologizing to James. After a short conversation, Angela gets up to leave, but James asks her about the knife. What about that? Will you hold it for me? Sure. No problem. If I kept it, I'm not sure what I might do. James moves to take the knife from Angela, but she immediately recoils. No! Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'd be bad. Please don't! Angela leaves the knife on a nearby nightstand, and then she leaves the room. I didn't pick up on it right away, especially when I played this game for the first time when I was younger, but Angela has suffered some serious abuse in her life. It's unclear where this abuse comes from at this point, and whether it's physical, mental, or both, but her behavior is pretty indicative of this. I always find myself feeling sorry for Angela, and wishing I could help her in some way. I don't know if the game meant to do this on purpose, but it made me as a player and kind of as a person feel a little powerless. I started to feel a little grief myself, even though I didn't know this person or really what their struggles were. Before moving out of the room, the game makes us take her knife with us. We can't use it as a weapon, but seeing it in our inventory is a stark reminder of the events that just unfolded. We don't see Angela again until much later in the game, but before we do, we can come across a newspaper if we happen to notice it on the ground. It talks about a man named Thomas, who was stabbed to death in the neck and the left side by a sharp weapon. The newspaper notes the lack of a murder weapon, and since Thomas had a history of drunkenness and violence, police assume that this was a crime of passion. The player needs to read between the lines on this one a little, but this person that got stabbed is actually Angela's father. At this moment, we hear Angela crying out. Rushing into the next room, we see Angela sitting in the corner of the room, completely traumatized. There's a large monster in the room, and it quickly turns its attention towards James. We, as the player, need to defeat this creature, and it can be a pretty difficult battle at times. Once we do defeat the creature, Angela regains herself to the point where she grabs a nearby TV and smashes it on the creature, killing it. Before leaving the room, she screams and begins to kick it without mercy. Now after this scene unfolds, some players may just leave the room and continue the game. But if you take a moment to really soak up your surroundings, a lot of really creepy and disgusting things fall into place. The walls of the room that you're in are almost lined in human flesh. There are holes in the wall all around the room, and inside you can see these metallic pistons moving back and forth, in and out. The symbolism here is fairly obvious, I would think. 
If we look at the monster we just dispatched and recall our fight with it, the creature resembles two figures intertwined, almost as if they're in a reclining sexual position over a large bed frame. Human flesh is wrapped all around itself, making it seem like it's trapped within itself. Combine this with the sexual imagery of the room itself, the newspaper clipping we read right before coming into the room, Angela's overall behavior, and her reaction to the dead creature, we can come to the conclusion that Angela was sexually abused by her father, and this is where a large part of her trauma comes from. When I came to the realization on my own as a player, I felt incredibly sad. No person should have to go through something like this, and even though Angela is only a character in a video game, I felt incredibly sorry for her and wished I could help her in some way. And I'd like to think that James as a character felt this way too. I will say, once I made this realization, I could not get out of that room fast enough. The last time we see Angela is in front of a burning staircase in the Lakeside Hotel. Hung on the walls to either side of her are what look like two skinned, blood-stained male corpses. It's also implied that both of the corpses are castrated. I assumed one of these figures was symbolic of Angela's father, but who was the other one? I realized that it could possibly be Angela's brother, who she briefly mentioned in the beginning of the game. The implications of this are even worse than what we already knew, if that's truly the case. Thank you for saving me, but I wish you hadn't. Even Mama said it. I deserved what happened. No, Angela, that's wrong. No. Don't pity me. I'm not worth it. And with that, we learn one more part of Angela's tragic story. It's implied that her mother not only knew of the abuse that she was suffering, but consciously allowed it to happen. Any sort of hope that Angela might have felt by being rescued by James earlier is immediately engulfed in flames figuratively and quite literally. At this point, Angela is completely consumed by her grief and asks James for the knife back. James refuses, and when Angela accuses James of saving it for himself, he shakes his head and says that he would never kill himself. It's at this point Angela turns around and starts to ascend the stairs. Fire starts to spread in front of James, and he's unable to follow after her. James speaks up as Angela climbs upwards. It's hot as hell in here. You see it too. For me, it's always like this. At this point, control is given back to the player for this part, and all we can do is watch Angela disappear into the flames. It's theorized that those who come to Silent Hill see a vision of it that's a manifestation of their inner trauma or emotion. The theory here is that Angela's version of Silent Hill is constantly on fire, and that fire can be the symbols of pain, destruction, and even rage. 
When James finally begins to understand the trauma that Angela has in her heart, he can finally see the world as she sees it. Like I mentioned before, I always feel sorry for Angela no matter how many times I play this game. But the idea of inserting Angela and her trauma into the story isn't just a side piece of the narrative. The grief, the pain, and the torment are things that James has experienced as well, and while I don't think it's directly implied in the game, I feel as though James has contemplated taking his own life at some point before the beginning of the game, or, depending on how you play through the game, he will contemplate it again before the game is over. The idea makes James look at suicide as a way to deal with his own trauma, and no matter what scary monsters or subject matter you've dealt with along the way, I've always felt that this notion hits the hardest. But what sort of trauma could James be carrying that could possibly make him think about something like this? I mentioned it before, but one of the powers Silent Hill has is the ability to physically manifest a person's inner trauma, feelings, and even their delusions. This is mostly seen with the monsters found around Silent Hill, but probably the biggest representation of all of this is with Maria, a character I haven't really talked about yet that James meets when he eventually makes it to the park on the lake. Maria looks and sounds identical to James's late wife. They have the same face and even the same voice. It's to a point where James accidentally assumes Maria is Mary when they first meet. Maria's personality is also different from Mary's, being much more extroverted. She's also much more flirtatious, and we pick up on this almost immediately. Mary? No. You're not. Do I look like your girlfriend? No, my late wife. I can't believe it. You could be her twin. Your face, your voice, just your hair and clothes are different. My name is Maria. I don't look like a uh, ghost, do I? See? Feel how warm I am? You're really not Mary. I told you. I'm Maria. When James first meets Maria, he's obviously confused. Maria even finds some subtle ways to poke at Mary and seems to have a sort of disdain towards her. Once he realizes this person isn't his late wife, he goes to leave, but Maria becomes clingy and will actually stay with the player for a little while. Eventually, James and Maria come across Laura, a little girl James has seen a few times now, and they start to chase after her. They come to the Brookhaven Hospital and follow Laura inside. At one point, Maria starts to feel unwell and needs to stay behind in one of the rooms with a bed in it. You can go back into the room and check on Maria if you decide to do so, and it's clear that Maria is not doing so hot even though she only claims she's dealing with a hangover. As you explore the hospital, Maria eventually goes missing when you return to check on her. Several empty medicine bottles are nearby, but otherwise there is no trace of Maria. We'll eventually find Maria in the basement of the hospital, and it's clear she is feeling much better because she is royally pissed off at James when he doesn't come off as concerned for her as she would have liked. James, 
Mary? Oh, Maria, it's you. I thought you were... Sorry. Anyway, I'm glad you're alive. Anyway? What do you mean, anyway? You don't sound very happy to see me. I was almost killed back there. Why didn't you try to save me? All you care about is that dead wife of yours. I've never been so scared in my whole life. You couldn't care less about me, could you? No, I just... Then stay with me. Don't ever leave me alone. You're supposed to take care of me. As a player, I always found myself feeling bad for Maria at this point. Part of me always wondered if maybe this woman was actually Mary in some capacity and just doesn't remember James. I usually find myself dismissing her outright at times, but when this scene happens, I always feel compelled to stick with her a little closer and protect her from the horrors of the town. And it's funny, because that's exactly what Maria is trying to get James to do. She is not Mary, but in a way, she's trying to be. Or at least, trying to replace her. Moving on from here, James and Maria's reunion is short-lived when they encounter something I somehow have not brought up to this point in the episode. When they enter a long, twisting hallway, they find themselves pursued by a large, hulking, humanoid creature. It carries with it a great spear, is adorned with a butcher's attire, and affixed atop its head is a large red helmet in the shape of a pyramid. Yes, this creature is the well-known and widely feared Pyramid Head. Those that know of Pyramid Head fear him, and rightfully so. This creature is the physical manifestation of James's guilt and the need to be punished. For what exactly? If you're listening this far into the podcast, you probably know, but in case you don't, we'll get there. For now, James and Maria need to get out of this hallway. The player controls James here, and through a series of winding passages, you need to run away as fast as you can while Pyramid Head pursues you. Maria will always lag behind, so it's best to just run and get the heck out of there. At the end of the long hallway is an open elevator. When James reaches it, he runs inside and turns around to reach out for Maria. Unfortunately, the doors start to close and Maria can't quite make it inside in time. James, in a panic, tries to get the door open as Pyramid Head closes in. Open up! Maria's hand, which was inside the elevator, is slowly pulled away and the doors close. James, his heart stricken with grief, falls to the floor and turns his back to the doors. 
James doesn't quite know it yet, but this is just the beginning of a punishment James has subconsciously wished upon himself for a long time. Eventually, the elevator stops and James musters the strength to get up and continue onwards. He gathers himself and sets out again to find Mary. As time passes and James continues to search for Mary, he'll eventually find himself in an underground maze just off an old abandoned prison facility. He soon comes upon Maria, alive and well, locked inside of a cell. In the cell is a single chair that Maria sits on and a bed. James approaches Maria, and when she speaks to him, it's almost as if she's flip-flopping personalities. One moment, it almost seems like he's talking to Mary. The next, Maria. This is the very scene that plays in the teaser movie before selecting a new game at the title screen. Maria tries to seduce James and almost hints at some sexual pleasures if he can get her out of the cell that she's locked in. James at this point is just flat out tired, confused, desperate, and just beaten down. He agrees to find a way to rescue Maria and return when he's found the means. Eventually, James does find his way into Maria's cell, but when he gets in, he finds that Maria is once again dead. Her lifeless body is lying on the bed. The camera slowly pans upwards from Maria's midsection all the way up to her face. Her face is bloodied on one side, almost implying that she was beaten to death. Stricken with grief once again, alongside his confusion, James takes a moment to mourn Maria at her bedside. This situation is starting to feel familiar to James, like he's been here before. And it's not because he saw Maria get stabbed to death by Pyramid Head inside that elevator. It's something else. Something long repressed that's clawing its way out of James's mind. Now, I'm going to skip over a decent chunk of the story here just to keep the focus on Maria, but after James loses Maria a second time, he will eventually find his way across to Luca Lake and to the Lakeview Hotel. James figured out the special place that Mary was referring to in her letter was the hotel, after all. There is something funny to point out about that letter, though. By the time the player has made it to the point they're heading to the hotel, Mary's letter to James from the beginning of the game, which is in James's inventory, changes. If you examine it now in your inventory, you'll see that the piece of paper that the letter was written on is now completely blank. As James slowly starts to question things and make some realizations, Mary's letter responds accordingly. When James finally reaches the hotel, he finds it pretty much as he left it the last time he and Mary visited here. They stayed in room 312, and James figures out pretty quickly that this is where he needs to go. Along the way, James finds an old videotape that he and Mary made during their visit, but mistakenly left it behind. After a bit of a journey, James eventually makes it to room 312, and it's here where the horrible truth about what happened to Mary is revealed. Shortly after their vacation to Silent Hill three years prior, 
Mary became sick and was stricken with an unspecified terminal illness. She was bedridden, and the disease started to ravage her mentally as well as physically. Her smooth and soft skin turned dark, she suffered hair loss, and her face began to deform. Mary started to view herself as a monster, and she started to become depressed, hopeless, and quite angry. The doctors told James that there was no helping Mary, and there was nothing more that they could do. As Mary became more distraught and more angry, she started lashing out at James, who made it a point to not visit Mary in the hospital all that often in an effort to avoid the pain and the tension that had built up between the two of them. In time, Mary was permitted to return home. Not because she was getting any better, but because her time was nearly at an end. Mary wanted to return home for no other reason than to see James again, because she feared he wouldn't be there for her before passing on. While she was very angry and very upset, she also knew the burden she was placing on James, who didn't take well to being Mary's caretaker. Soon, Mary died and James was left behind to live on without her. That was until he received a letter from her telling him that she's waiting for him in Silent Hill. But now that letter was blank. Was it even real? What does it all mean? Why is James even here? Why is he seeing all these monsters and nightmare creatures in the town? Who is Maria, really? She looks like Mary, even though it's clear that she's not Mary. Is she a figment of James's imagination? And what about the Red Pyramid thing? How does it all fit together? As James makes his way into room 312, he spots an old VCR that's hooked to a TV. He slides the tape into the VCR and lets it play. On screen, we see Mary, young and healthy. She talks to the camera and tells James that she absolutely loves being in Silent Hill. She doesn't want to leave and ask James to take her there again someday. Soon, though, Mary begins to cough, and static fills the screen. Soon the image changes, and we can see Mary lying down on a bed. She's clearly ill at this point, and we can see James come up alongside the bed. We can't hear what he's saying to her, but we see him give Mary a kiss on the forehead. And then we see James reach for something, and the static overtakes the screen again. We only catch glimpses of it, but through the static, we can make out James smothering Mary with a pillow. Mary struggles as James puts more pressure down as he slowly snuffs the life from his wife, removing the burden that has been bringing him down all this time. While we don't see everything through the static, we see enough. Even as a kid playing this game for the first time, I remember my mouth slowly falling open. I couldn't believe what I had just watched. And it's here that almost everything we've seen and encountered in Silent Hill up to this point starts to make a grim sort of sense, and some of the symbolism that certain things represent are made a bit more clear. The creatures in Silent Hill are all manifestations of James' mental state. 
Pyramid Head acts as the executioner who was born through James's need to punish himself for his sins since, up to this point, he chose not to accept his role in Mary's death. There's actually a point later in the game where Maria is killed a third time by Pyramid Head, and her death at the hands of Pyramid Head serve as repeat mental punishment. James is forced to watch her die repeatedly, until he comes to grips with the truth and ultimately takes responsibility. It's also implied that James began to become incredibly sexually frustrated. As Mary's beauty was taken by the disease, James and Mary no longer became physically intimate. This frustration manifests itself in many of the monsters seen in Silent Hill. The nurses you come across in the hospital are probably the more obvious example of this. The nurses wear low-cut blouses that show off their figure and accentuate their breasts, and short skirts that show off their legs as well. The nurses twitch as they move around, perhaps hinting at James's general anxiety. The mannequin creatures James fights in the apartment building are another great example. They are essentially two sets of legs sewn together, and the legs are clearly female. Maria is a pretty obvious manifestation of Mary herself. Her physical features are all the same as Mary's, though her personality is more outspoken and flirty. Maria came to be out of James's desire to see and be with Mary again, and this version of Mary was James's ideal version of her. I've always assumed this is why Pyramid Head constantly sought out Maria and killed her repeatedly. James tried to get around his sin by subconsciously creating the ideal Mary, but Pyramid Head was not having any of that and sought to punish him at every turn. The town of Silent Hill itself is a form of symbolism as well, and each person in Silent Hill sees their own version of it. Angela, who we talked about for instance, sees flesh-covered walls and orifices that remind her of the sexual abuse that she suffered. James will oftentimes see a dark and damp version of Silent Hill. Hospital gurneys will appear in places that they don't belong, beds are white and clean, similar to those that Mary would have been on in the hospital. There's very little in this game that doesn't serve a purpose and connect to some larger piece of the story, narrative, or underlying emotion of a character. Once you learn the horrible truth behind what James did to Mary, you may even see your own world differently. Depending on certain behaviors you exhibit and even some choices that you make during gameplay, Silent Hill can end a couple different ways. I'll leave you to either discover these endings for yourself or look up the conditions, but I have to say, regardless of what ending you get, it will impact you in some way. Or at least I think it will. It can hit you different depending on how you feel about certain things or what real-life experiences you carry inside yourselves up to that point when you see that ending. As a kid, though, I remember being sad, but it didn't go much deeper than that for me, and that's fine. But when I experienced the end of the game as my 39-year-old adult self, I found myself thinking about my mom. My mother was 51 years old when she died. 
I can't remember when she was diagnosed with cancer, but it took its toll on her pretty much like when Mary got sick in the game. Chemotherapy helped for a little bit, but eventually my mom lost weight, she started losing her hair, and soon she started losing her spark. My mom was never someone to take something lying down and always fought as hard as she could, especially for things she believed in or the things that she loved. But over time, the cancer started to win and my mom couldn't get around much. My stepdad did most of the caretaking and I would help out here and there by watching after my mom when he was at work. This was back in 2011-2012 and I was in my late 20s. I didn't want to be watching over my mom. I wanted to be out living my life. I remember getting upset with my mom at times. I never let her see it, of course, but it all started to wear on me. Seeing my mom in the state that she was in and knowing nothing was going to change for the better. I'd like to think that anyone in this position probably has these thoughts at some point. It's easy to fall into a depression and even let guilt take over. But what I remember at times was looking back at my mom on the bed or on the couch or wherever she was, and I'd catch her just looking at me. Her eyes would always be glowing, and if she had the strength, sometimes I'd see her smile a little bit. I never really understood why at the time, though. After she passed away, I would often think about those moments in time. Like, what was it that she was thinking? What would she have said to me if she could? Well, it might be the world's worst segue, but after watching the end of Silent Hill 2, I like to think I finally have an answer. When the game ends, James will have a dialogue with Mary. While some details can be different depending on the ending experienced, James largely comes to terms with what he did to Mary and how her illness impacted him. But more importantly, at least for me, we got to understand some things from Mary's perspective and understood her feelings throughout the entire ordeal. While Mary felt lonely and full of grief, she longed for James to just be with her. But she also understood what kind of a burden she was placing on him, how her disease stopped him from living the life that they had planned together and the life that he wanted for himself. She ultimately wanted James to move on with his life, but couldn't bear the thought of him forgetting about her. We got to understand the mental struggles Mary went through as she slowly came closer to leaving this world and how that caused her to lash out. But we also got to understand how much of that was out of resentment. Not at James, though, the circumstances. It's these sort of things that I wonder if my mom felt at any point. As I slowly watched the life leave her, I found myself thinking about a lot of things. Was I a good son? Did I do right by her? Was she proud of me? In my heart of hearts, though, I know the answer is yes. I saw it in her eyes. And while her passing was hard and continues to be hard sometimes, I can move on knowing this even if I wasn't there with her at the end. And when we finally hear Mary tell James this, it's the perfect ending to this video game story of survival, grief, resentment, uncertainty, and pain. 
it's the perfect way one can walk away from this game and know that not only have we played a masterpiece of atmosphere, tension, and horror, they'll have a story that they can carry with them for years to come. It's the perfect way to know that despite life's inevitable pain, sadness, and circumstance, the experiences and memories of those we love will always endure. And even if we lose those people along the way, it's up to us to go on living and carry their memories along with us. I can't tell you to remember me, but I can't bear for you to forget me. These last few years since I became ill, I am so sorry for what I did to you, did to us. You've given me so much, and I haven't been able to return a single thing. That's why I want you to live for yourself now. Do what's best for you, James. James, you made me happy. And with that, we have come to the end of episode 45 of the Retro Wildlands, Silent Hill 2. Thank you all very much for listening to the show today. If you're still listening this far, I just want to apologize for going super deep there at the end. The ending of this game really hit me different since it made me think of my mom, and I couldn't think of any other way to relay what this experience meant to me now that I experienced it as an adult. The topic was pretty heavy, and I hope I didn't make anyone uncomfortable, but thank you so much for listening to me. And please, there is no need to reach out and offer condolences for my mom or anything like that, and I certainly didn't share the story to garner any pity. It just helped bridge the gaps that I wanted to fill in order to close the game experience out. Again, thanks a ton for listening today. I really appreciate it. Silent Hill 2 will forever be a masterpiece in video gaming. You can certainly take into account things like the clunky controls and terrible voice acting, but at its core, I don't think we'll ever have a game that hits as hard as this one does anytime soon. Although there is that Silent Hill 2 remake that's on the horizon. I am cautiously optimistic that the remake will bring back the glory that this game once had, but only time will tell if that's the case. If you like the show and you want to show it and myself some support, please consider subscribing to it on your preferred podcasting platform. I have no release schedule at this moment, and I'm making and posting podcasts whenever my busy life allows, so subscribing to the show will let you know the moment I post something new. 
And if you really like the show and want to go the extra mile, I would really appreciate it if you left us a good review anywhere that you're able to. Good reviews, I assume, will help circulate the podcast and get us a little bit more exposure, but it would really make my day to see a good review if you think that I earned it. I put a lot of effort into these shows, and I'm quite proud of them. So if you could, I would appreciate the positive review, but you are under no obligation. Just the fact that you are listening to me right now is much more than I could ask for, so again, thank you. So, what's coming up next? If everything goes as planned, I will be covering Super Mario RPG on our next episode. The remake slash remaster is coming out in November of this year, and I am in the middle of replaying the original on my Super Nintendo Classic to prepare. I'll cover the game on the show, and I'm also going to be bringing a buddy of mine along for the ride as we talk about the original and speculate as to what the new game has in store. It's going to be a good time, so make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on that episode when it drops. I'm looking forward to seeing you again in the Wildlands with us again soon, so definitely come back. You are always welcome here. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me... Roaming the Retro Wildlands. (laughs) 